Australian Legendary Tales Folklore. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Australian Legendary Tales Folklore by Mrs. K. Langlow Parker. Preface and Introductory. Preface. A neighbour of mine exclaimed when I mentioned that I proposed making a small collection of the folklore legends of the tribe of blacks I knew so well living on the station. But have the blacks any legends? Thus showing that people may live in a country and yet know little of the Aboriginal inhabitants, and though there are probably many who do know these particular legends, yet I think that this is the first attempt that has been made to collect the tales of any particular tribe, and publish them alone. At all events, I know that no attempt has been made previously, as far as the folklore of the Noongaburras is concerned. Therefore, on the authority of Professor Max Muller, that folklore of any country is worth collecting. I am emboldened to offer my small attempt at a collection to the public, there are probably many who, knowing these legends, would not think them worth recording. But on the other hand, I hope there are many who think, as I do, that we should try, while there is yet time, to gather all the information possible of a race fast dying out, and the origin of which is so obscure. I cannot affect to think that these little legends will do much to remove the obscurity but undoubtedly a scientific and patient study of the folklore throughout Australia would greatly assist thereto. I, alas, am but an amateur, moved to my work by interest in the subject and in the blacks, of whom I have had some experience. The time is coming when it will be impossible to make even such a collection as this, for the old blacks are quickly dying out and the young ones will probably think it beneath the dignity of their so-called civilization, even to remember such old women's stories. Those who have themselves attempted the study of an unknown folklore will be able to appreciate the difficulties a student has to surmount before he can even induce those to talk who have the knowledge he desires. In this, as in so much else, those who ready to be garrulous know little. I have confined this little book to the legends of the Naran tribe, known among themselves as Noongaburras. It is astonishing to find, within comparatively short distances, a diversity of language and custom. You may even find the same word in different tribes bearing a totally different meaning. Many words, too, have been introduced, which the blacks think are English, and the English think are native. Such, for example, as Piccaninny, and, as far as these outside blacks are concerned, Boomerang is regarded as English, their local word being Burren, yet nine out of ten people whom you meet think both are local native words. Though I have written my little book in the interests of folklore, I hope it will gain the attention of 
and have some interest for children of Australian children, because they will find stories of old friends among the bush birds, and of English children, because I hope that they will be glad to make new friends, and so establish a free trade between the Australian and English nurseries, wingless and laughing birds, in exchange for fairy godmothers and princes in disguise. I must also acknowledge my great indebtedness, who, when once they understood what I wanted to know, were most ready to repeat to me the legends repeating with the utmost patience. Time after time, not only the legends, but the names, that I might manage to spell them, so as to be understood when repeated. In particular, I should like to mention my indebtedness to Peter Hippie, King of the Noongaburras, and to Hippatha, Mata, Baragari, and Bimani. I have dedicated my booklet to Peter Hippie, in grateful recognition of his long and faithful service to myself and my husband, which has extended with few intervals over a period of twenty years. He, too, is probably the last king of the Noongaburras, who are fast dying out, and soon their weapons, bartered by them for tobacco or whiskey, alone will prove that they ever existed. It seemed to me a pity that some attempt should not be made to collect the folklore of the quickly disappearing tribe, a folklore embodying probably the thoughts, fancies, and beliefs of the genuine Aboriginal race, and which, as such, deserves to be, indeed, as Max Muller says, might be and ought to be collected in every part of the world. The legends were told to me by the blacks themselves, some of whom remember the coming of Michelin, as they called Major Mitchell, the explorer of these back creeks. The old blacks laugh now when they tell you how frightened their mothers were of the first wheel tracks they saw. They would not let the children tread on them, but carefully lifted them over, lest their feet should break out in sores, as they were supposed to do if they trod on a snake's track. But with all their fear, little did they realize that the coming of Michelin was the beginning of their end, or that fifty years afterwards, from the remnant of their once numerous tribe, would be collected the legends they told in those days to their piccaninnies round their camp fires, and those legends used to make a Christmas booklet for the children of their white supplanters. I can only hope that the white children will be as ready to listen to these stories as were, and indeed are, the little piccaninnies, and thus the sale of this booklet be such as to enable me to add frocks and tobacco when I give their Christmas dinner, as in my yearly custom to the remnant of the Noongaburras. K. Langlow Parker, Bangate, Narran River, New South Wales, June 24, 1895. Introduction Australia makes an appeal to the fancy which is all its own. When Cortes entered Mexico in the most romantic moment of history, it was as if the men had found their way to a new planet. So strange, so long hidden from Europe, was all that they beheld. 
still they found kings, nobles, peasants, palaces, temples, a great organized society, fauna and flora, not so very different from what they had left behind in Spain. In Australia all was novel, and, while seeming fresh, was inestimably old. The vegetation differs from ours. The monotonous grey gum trees did not resemble our varied forests, but were antique, melancholy, featureless, like their own continent of rare hills, infrequent streams and interminable deserts, concealing nothing within their wastes, yet promising a secret. The birds and beasts, kangaroo, platypus, emu, are ancient types, rough grotesques of nature, sketching as a child draws. The natives were a race without a history, far more antique than Egypt, nearer the beginnings than any other people. Their weapons are the most primitive, those of the extinct, Tasmanians, were actually Palolithic. The soil holds no pottery, the cave walls no pictures drawn by men more advanced, the sea hides no ruined palaces, no cities are buried in the plains, there is not a trace of inscriptions or of agriculture. The burying places contain relics of men, perhaps even lower than the existing tribes. Nothing attests the presence in any age of men more cultivated. Perhaps myriads of years have gone by since the Delta, or the lands besides Euphrates and Tigris were as blank of human modification as was the whole Australian continent. The manners and rites of the natives were far the most archic of all with which we are acquainted. Temples they had none, no images of gods, no altars of sacrifice, scarce any memorials of the dead. Their worship, at best, was offered in hymns to some vague, half-forgotten deity or first-maker of things, a god decrepit from age, or all but careless of his children. Spirits were known and feared, but scarcely defined or described. Sympathetic magic, and perhaps a little hypnotism, were all their science. Kings and nations they knew not, they were wanderers, houseless and homeless. Custom was king, yet custom was tenacious, irresistible, and as complex in minute details as the etiquette of Spanish kings, or the ritual of the Flamens of Rome. The archaic intricacies and taboos of the customs and regulations of marriage might puzzle a mathematician and may, when unravelled, explain the less complicated prohibitions of a totemism less antique. The people themselves in their struggle for existence had developed great ingenuities. They had the boomerang and the wheat-wheat, but not the bow, the throwing-stick, but not, of course, the sword, the message-stick, but not hieroglyphs, and their art was almost purely decorative in geometrical patterns not representative. They deemed themselves akin to all nature, and call cousins with rain and smoke, with clouds and sky, as well as with beasts and trees. They were adroit hunters, skilled trackers, born sportsmen. They now ride well, 
and for savages play cricket fairly. But being invaded by the practical emigrant or the careless convict, the natives were not studied when in their prime, and science began to examine them almost too late. We have the works of Sir George Grey, the too brief pamphlet of Mr. Gideon Lang, the more learned labours of Messrs. Kizen and Howitt, and the collections of Mr. Brow Smythe, the mysteries, borer, of the natives, the initiary rites, a little of the magic, a great deal of the social customs are known to us, and we have fragments of the myths. But till Mrs. Langlow Parker wrote this book, we had but few with the stories which Australian natives tell by the camp fire or in the gum tree shade. These, for the most part, are kinder Martian, though they include many aetological myths, explanatory of the markings and habits of animals, the origin of constellations, and so forth. They are a savage edition of the metamorphosis, and few unbiased students now doubt that the metamorphosis are a very late and very artificial version of traditional tales as savage in origin as those of the Noongaburra. I have read Mrs. Parker's collection with very great interest, with human pleasure, merely for the story's sake. Children will find here the jungle book, never before printed, of black little boys and girls. The sympathy with and knowledge of beast life and bird life are worthy of Mr. Kipling, and the grotesque names are just what children like. Diamond and Goomble Govan should take their place with Ricky Ticky and Mr. Kipling's other delightful creatures. But there is here no Mowgli set apart in the jungle as a man. Man, bird, and beast are all blended in the Australian fancy as in that of Bushmen and Red Indians. All are one kindred, all shade into each other, all obey the bush law as they obey the jungle law in Mr. Kipling's fascinating stories. This confusion, of course, is not peculiar to Australian marching. It is the prevalent feature of our own popular tales, but the Australians do it more natural. The stories are not the heritage of a traditional and dead, but the flowers of a living and actual condition of the mind. The stories have not the ingenuous dramatic turns of our own marching, where there are no distinctions of wealth and rank. There can be no Cinderella and no Puss in Boots. Many stories are rude, aetiological myths. They explain the habits and characteristics of the birds and beasts, and account in a familiar way for the origin of death. Balu, the moon, and the Danes. The origin of fire is also accounted for in what may almost be called a scientific way. Once discovered, it is, of course, stolen from the original proprietors. A savage cannot believe that the first owners of fire would give the secret away. The inventors of the myth of Prometheus were of the same mind. On the whole, the stories, perhaps, most resemble those from the Zulu in character, though these represent a much higher grade of civilization. The struggle for food and water, desperately absorbing, is the perpetual theme, and no wonder, 
for the narrators dwell in a dry and thirsty land, and till not, nor sow, nor keep any domestic animals. We see the cunning of the savage in the devices for hunting, especially for chasing honey-bees. The rain magic actually practised is of curious interest. In brief, we have pictures of savage life by savages, romances which are truly realistic. We understand that condition which Dr. Johnson did not think happy, the state from which we came, and to which we shall probably return, equality, liberty, community of goods, all means savagery, and even savages, if equal, are not really free. Custom is the tyrant. The designs are from the sketchbook of an untaught Australian native. They were given to me some years ago by my brother, Dr. Lang, of Currawa. The artist has a good deal of spirit in his hunting scenes. His trees are not ill done. His emus and kangaroos are better than his men and labourers. Using ink, a pointed stick, and paper, the artist shows an unwanted freedom of execution. Nothing like this occurs in Australian scratches with a sharp stone on hard wood. Probably no other member of his dying race ever illustrated a book. Andrew Lang End of Preface and Introductory